0: Listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy Faculty Member Eric Jansen will anchor the session.
1: Craig Follett is one of the most genuine people that I know. He went on to start Universe before the company was ultimately acquired by Ticketmaster in 2015. In this wide-ranging conversation, Craig shares with us his calculated founding story of Universe, how he de-risked the decision and ultimately left his prestigious job at BCG to start the company. Since the acquisition, Craig has remained at the helm as Universe's CEO, and despite the fact that he's achieved financial freedom, he very much remains the same person today as he was when he founded the company almost a decade ago. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed having this very candid conversation with Universe founder and CEO, Craig Follett. Today I wanted to get into your story, your entrepreneurial journey but I'd like to rewind back. If you can tell me, maybe you in 90 seconds, a little bit of, if you could summarize your own bio. Sure. So I, I grew up in Ontario.
0: I studied engineering and business at Western and Ivy. Always knew I wanted to start a company. My, uh, my one grandfather was an entrepreneur and my other grandfather was an engineer. And so maybe I'm a little bit of a blend of both of them. And uh, yeah, so studied engineering, went to Ivy, loved it, and then thought that I wanted to become an investment banker. So I did an internship at Credit Suisse, You know, did well, learned a bit, but I always knew I wanted to start a company, so I felt that what I was learning was not necessarily entirely applicable. So I wanted to change gears a bit, switched over, worked for BCG for three years, doing strategy consulting, and then from there, left BCG to launch Universe, which... We started as a sharing economy business, grew and pivoted into an event and ticketing business, and then sold to Live Nation Ticketmaster.
1: And that was, you sold in 20... 2015. 2015. So rewind a little bit. Entrepreneurial inklings then came from your probably grandparents. Your parents at all raise you entrepreneurially? I don't know, how does
0: an entrepreneur raised, right? Like my so my dad's a lawyer and my mom is a is a grade school teacher. And they always raised me to be very well-rounded. So I did like a million extracurriculars, like played violin, played hockey, just like, but like across a wide spectrum of things. So they kept me very, very busy. And maybe that well-roundedness was something that's related to entrepreneurship in a way.
1: And definitely keeping busy is. Keeping busy, juggling multiple priorities. Uh, Competitive sports is one that seems to be coming up a lot. People that play competitive sports. What did you play growing up?
0: Uh, Played hockey, skiing, did a little bit of soccer, but kind of gravitated more towards hockey.
1: Okay. Yeah. Summer jobs. Were you delivering Sears catalogs? Are you starting your own lawn care business? What were you doing? I was a lifeguard. Ah. Yeah. Great gig. Yeah. As a young. Great gig.
0: As a young adult. Got to be outside, and so lifeguard and swimming instructor. So did a bit of that.
1: Nice. Okay. So your path out of school was not to start the company right away, but you knew that you wanted to. Why didn't you start it right away?
0: Uh, I think that I knew that I wanted to build experience, build connections and save a bit of money. You know, I, I don't come from a lot of family money or anything. So built a little bit of a nest egg or a safety net. And then from there was able to launch in kind of a, a more formidable way. Um, just like wholeheartedly.
1: And for you, would you do it differently or that was the right path for you?
0: I think it was the right path for me. It's probably different for each person. And for me, and this one of my mentors described BCG this way, BCG for me was like an extension of school in a way. So I kind of didn't do it right out of school, but it did it out of the school of consulting.
1: So what did you learn in consulting that you think, or or did, do you think consulting directly or indirectly attributed to the success that you've had with Universe?
0: I think that it definitely helped. I don't think it's the only thing because I think consulting is obviously very different from entrepreneurship. But um, I think consulting is a great learning environment, right? So you rotate through a variety of different cases uh, in a rapid pace. And what I personally would do is at the end of each case, I would reflect, like, okay, based on this experience with a client, is there a business I would start? You know, I know something new about an industry or an inefficiency in a business what are some entrepreneurial solutions that would resolve those? So I kind of tried to keep that hat on. And then as I progressed through BCG and was able to prove myself as a strong performer, I was able to choose a little bit more closely the projects I wanted to be on. And so I got to choose projects that were more in the tech sector, Doing like due diligences and MA of tech startups for other companies. And then I was more directly looking at startups and kind of interviewing the entrepreneurs to create strategies based on startup landscapes. So eventually it did directly kind of help. And then there's all sorts of skills that you build, like writing decks or, you know, presence and clients or what have you.
1: So when it came time to raise capital or do a pitch deck, you were
0: Yeah. I could whip up a a pitch deck and you know, raise capital pretty well.
1: You were so. you were well trained. Sometimes at least in my own experience it's hard it's hard to if you're in it to learn did you feel like you were doing the learning so that you could then eventually apply this to the company one day or were you just trying to soak up all the learning for learning's sake at that point? Did you know what the learning was for or were you just happy to be in it? Learning? I think I was a little bit of both, but more so just happy
0: to be in it. Like I knew that I was learning all sorts of things that would be applicable and I wouldn't know what they are at the time. You know, I might be learning something in one project or from one manager that would be relevant later on and I wouldn't realize it. So there was some deliberate, like, okay, reflection. I want to start a company at some point. Is this helping that or what have I learned? But there was more of an osmosis. And one of the things I realized from my time at Credit Suisse, when I was at Credit Suisse in the internship, I sort of felt like, you know what, I don't really think like I'm I'm learning anything here. And then I got back to school and I was working on projects and I realized at that point, only only at that point, wow, I've actually learned a lot here, like I'm an Excel wizard now. like And I didn't really realize, it's like boiling a frog, put a frog in some cold water, turn up the temperature slowly and the frog never jumps out. And I, I didn't really realize that at Credit Suisse until after I'd left. And so that was a realization that, you know, has helped me since then. I realized that even now I'm still learning stuff. It may not feel like it every day, but I know that I am. And, you know, when you change context, then you might realize it.
1: Right. There's a saying something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing entirely, but when you're in school, you forget. What you're, you don't really realize how much you're learning, but you'll realize it when you go home at Thanksgiving or home at Christmas. Yes. And you sort of reinsert yourself into the environment where people aren't doing it every day. You're like, wow, okay, I've actually, I realize now when I see the baseline of people who aren't in this intense learning environment, actually how much I have learned. Exactly. So fast forward a little bit then. When you, you did BCG for three years not an atypical inflection point. There's usually like, do I want to continue down the consulting path? Do I want to do my MBA? Do I want to reset somewhere else? So you chose at a certain a certain point to leave BCG and start your own company. Mm-hmm. Did you, there's two different ways that we've had guests on talk about this. They say, I have an inkling, I quit. Now I'm going to go work on the inkling or I have an inkling. I'm going to explore it. I'm going to test. I'm going to validate some things. And then when the time is right, once I've got enough validation, I'm going to leave. So was it one of those or something different entirely? I think it's something different,
0: maybe a little bit of a hybrid, but uh, maybe it's kind of a unique perspective. Let's see. So up on three years, have an inkling, know that I'm interested in it. But basically what I did is I set a set of hurdles for myself. So I said, okay, first I need an idea, check. Okay, Now I need a co-founding team, check. In that co-founding team, I need a technical co-founder, a CTO. For my particular business, I needed that. Check. All right, now we need an agreement, a shareholder agreement that, you know, makes sure that we're all in it to win it. We're in it for the long term. We're all vested. Check. We have kind of a safety net there. And then we've all put, you know, money into the bank. Check. And basically, I set all these hurdles. And to be honest, I defined the hurdles kind of at the beginning. And I didn't really expect that we would go through them all. I thought that it was going to drop off after I don't know hurdle three or four or whatever, and so that approach let me kind of go through and you know validate that this is something to launch into. With that being said, you know use the word validation. In retrospect, we did very little validation of the idea before we launched into it. We just launched into it. So, in and from a customer development standpoint or a product standpoint, we just took a big leap of faith. But I really looked to de-risk things on the team front and on the sort of structure front and I think that that created a stability and a tenacity that allowed the idea to eventually validate itself after lo- after leaving
1: got it so an interesting hybrid i was going to i was going to point that out that you you wanted to make sure that the team was right everybody was in it but did not not get out there and talk to customers and sell product and validate it that way at all.
0: Yeah. Interesting. That, and that's a learning, right? I think that that's not necessarily the most advisable way. But to launch into it is, you know, there's something to be said about just launching into it. Yeah. But I didn't want to launch into the team dynamic. I knew that one of the main reasons that business fail
1: is, you know, team stability and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So you had the core team. You would set up a bunch of these validation checkpoints that you wanted to be sure of, the internal validation checkpoints. Maybe we're creating a new term here. I Mm -hmm. like it. Yeah. So then you, at a certain point, gave your notice to BCG, Mm -hmm. uh, said, I've got this thing. Going to go, and that, they have to be encouraging of that. I know a lot of friends that have been at BCG and have gone on to start successful companies. So they were encouraging. They were. they were very encouraging. Yeah, nice. They like to put the BCG logo next to successful. That's right. They they start putting me in all the recruiting decks, and yeah, you know, you should come work, work. At BCG. Yeah,
0: come work here. You'll you know you can become an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what was the original idea then that you ended up leaving BCG for?
0: So the original idea was a sharing economy marketplace. So think of Airbnb, but if we rewind to 2011, there were a whole series of fragmented sharing economy businesses. So, you know, a marketplace for dog walkers and a marketplace for handyman and a marketplace for tools and a marketplace for vacation rentals, Airbnb. And our vision was we want to create a marketplace that spans all of these verticals because there's a lot of smaller ones that will only survive and thrive if we can create trust from other verticals to pollinate them. Because really the barrier to inviting someone into your home to you know cook a meal or to walk your dog is you need to trust them. And some of these verticals are a little less frequent. So we launched this horizontal. The vision of which was that the world is becoming a little too virtual and we wanted to increase human connections um, in the real world and do, do so in kind of an organic way where you know your people that you're living with in your condo building and you're interacting with them over sort of sharing time and, and space and activities and, and
1: so forth. So when you say launched horizontal, you weren't, you didn't say we are going to be a sharing account the, the new dog walking app or website, you said generally this Peer-to-peer marketplace is lacking trust. We can be the place where all of these things live because we're going to have trust amongst the the peers. Is that
0: exactly yeah? So we didn't we didn't launch like the dog walking marketplace. We we you know thought, okay, the product is maybe a little similar if you're hiring a dog walker or a babysitter or et cetera. The flow, the user experience, you know, the payment processing, everything is kind of shared. So let's leverage that across verticals. And so we launched this extremely broad marketplace at the beginning.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So where did you even start with that? Not like marketplace and unproven peer to, not, maybe not unproven peer to peer, but like not peer to peer of where it is today. So where where did you even go? You've quit your job. You've got a business plan, presumably. Did you write a business plan? We had
0: yet wrote a business plan in good BCG fashion, of nice, course, and IV nice. fashion. And uh, kind of you know quit our jobs and then started building a prototype and then started I guess threefold building a prototype so product building leads so very stealth mode generating leads of potential sharing economy supply side leads so dog walkers babysitters people who might share items people who might offer cooking classes and then also raising a round of capital so we looked in that sort of idea phase team and idea phase to raise this seed round that would last us and, you know, get us to a phase of traction.
1: How many people originally on the team? There were three of us. Three, full-time? All full-time. Nice. Yeah. That's key. Yeah. Getting people to jump jump in full-time. Okay. So you've got your business plan. Did you have a revenue model, an idea of a revenue model in the beginning?
0: Yeah, we uh, we definitely did. We thought, you know, we're going to be processing payments and we'll take a cut of that. We'll, you know, have a sort of a commission model. And then we thought maybe there will be other revenue streams in the future around sort of data and so
1: forth and advertising and other things. Don't but know
0: yet. We but... don't know yet, but our primary revenue model was going to be this commission revenue model.
1: Got it. And you you were the destination or you'd be the over the top sort of layer on other people's peer-to-peer marketplaces or you were the destination?
0: We were vertically integrated. We were the destination. We interestingly we had some vertical sharing economy companies come to us and say, "Hey, you know can you be a layer on top of these other verticals but no we were we were sort of vertically integrated we were processing the payments and the destination to discover these sharing economy listings and to share them
1: okay yeah. and i mean we know the answer yeah. universe ended up pivoting but was it did it work
0: some things worked some things didn't so we launched um, in january of 2012 and we had built up all these leads and we, you know, defined this pretty fully baked product. Like it was not a typical like MVP, minimum viable product, as you would say. So we launched and we built up a mass of supply-side leads. So just a ton of items and babysitters and dog walkers and activities, cooking classes, yoga sessions, you know, tens of thousands of these supply-side listings. But What we saw then is that there were some crickets on the demand side. So we had all these listings and no one was, relatively speaking, no one was booking them. So we had kind of a liquidity problem or a a demand side
1: problem. Okay, so interest from the people running these peer-to-peer marketplaces? Mm Mm-hmm some sort of partnership or something, where they were listing them on your site? Yep. And everything was launched and working, but no one is actually buying. So yep. what What next? Did, and did you raise, had you raised money at that point? At this point, we'd raised um, $750,000, yeah. Okay, so you raised some significant yeah. seed funding based on the idea, initial concept. Yeah. Dig into that for a second, because without market validation, and this is a challenge that a lot of my students are other entrepreneurs come to me with, how much how much validation do I need to have in order to start executing or to raise capital? Mm-hmm. And so you had, I guess, had a pretty good pedigree, Ivy grad, investment banker, consultant, leaving to start this thing, but didn't have market validation. So how did those early yeah. pitches go?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting phase, right? And so I reflect on this. It's a different style of pitch when you're pre-revenue and your idea phase. And so people were very much so investing in the team and the idea and the business plan and the vision and the excitement. And that's what they were they were interested in. So I think, you know, the pedigree, you know, the experience at, you know, investment banking and BCG, at engineering and Ivy and all these things, as well as the others on my team as well, that was really compelling for people.
1: So how did you when did you decide to go raise money how soon after you quit or left your other job did you go raise money
0: not immediately the three of us we you know well first of all we didn't take a salary for like a year and a half um so that was kind of an investment in of itself but we each put in call it 10 grand and we kind of focused on building up the the prototype first and we did that for a couple months. And then at that point we went and uh, set out to raise that, uh, that round. Got it. And how did you find those contacts? So a lot through the, through our, our personal networks. So people we'd worked with, friends of, of family, kind of just branching out. And then it it kind of just had a bit of a ripple effect. You know, we'd, we'd bring in someone and then they'd go one degree removed. And then the next thing you know, we have the former CEO of Fiat Ferrari who's investing. And that was not a direct connection. That was a, a friend
1: of a friend of a friend type well, that, situation. That's pretty cool though. If you can get someone, at least from what I've seen, if you can get an anchor in early enough like that, that gives you some sort of sexy cred in the beginning, so that's cool.
0: Yeah. yeah, he was he was one of the later ones to come in that round, but it helped in future
1: rounds. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so then you raised, uh, and this was from how many people? This was it
0: was a it was a lot of people in retrospect. So we had about thirty people in that round. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and one of the the ways that we did that is we we raised uh, what's known as a convertible note. So. With that, it sort of simplified the paperwork and simplified the discussions because we didn't need to really deliberate with each person what is the valuation of this thing because we have no traction. Literally, we basically deferred the valuation to the next round and we said we're going to give you a discount on the next round of funding, and so that was a pretty simple, you know, straightforward conversation.
1: And that was uh, the convertible note, so it was in the form of a loan that they could convert to equity on the future round. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. So you've got money in the bank. You've got a prototype, more than prototype. You launch, you go live. That's right. uh, You built it. They did not come. Uh, What next? Yeah. So what next? I
0: mean, half of the audience came, right? We had the suppliers, but not the buyers. And so uh, what came next is we had a lot of stick-to-itiveness, a lot of tenacity, and we said, we're going to make this work. And so we focused on Twofold, we looked at some marketing approaches and we looked at some product approaches. On the marketing side, we started to create campaigns around what we called theme weeks, which would engage people on different themes. So we had a um, you know, a food week and we had a caffeine week and we had a sports week and we would engage, you know, we were in Toronto, so we focused on the Toronto community and bring them into activities on the on the sort of marketing side of things. And then on the product side, we started to kind of growth hack things. So we focused on building product that would give tools to our supply side organizers. So the dog walker, the babysitter, the, the personal chef to invite people to their listing or to bring their network in. And so we built a lot of social network integrations with Facebook and Twitter and Google. And then we provided those tools to the event organizers so that they would bring their you know a couple thousand people in their network onto the platform. And that really started to pick up. so we that was kind of the next phase, and we're
1: like, oh, this is this is something. Things are happening. Yeah. So get into the details here when when the first when the site goes live and people aren't showing up, who called the meeting? Well, there were we, no one really called a meeting. It was kind of we were meeting
0: all the time. We were just in the office all the time around a ping pong table I should mention so that was our desk yeah and you know we had stand up meetings every morning and you know
1: we were just meeting all the time so asking is it working yeah is it working is it working is it working um and it was i mean it was half of it was yes but the user side wasn't growing per yeah. per your plan um i would assume did you have any guess at how quickly you had hoped it was going to grow uh, yeah, certainly we did. We had
0: you know a lot of projections that we really had hoped it would be a lot bigger, a lot faster. We really had a lot of tenacity, and we almost didn't really ask that question right away. We just sort of stuck to it and had faith that we were going to make it work, and you know kept plugging away. And we started to develop some traction that we thought was looking good. We'd go out and pitch investors for our next round. At this point, we're you know maybe six months into this uh, this phase. And then we started getting feedback that this traction is not enough, come back. And so we we had a lot of stick to it We just sort of stuck through it
1: until we started to find our footing a little bit. Got it. So if it wasn't one meeting, then it was a series of meetings over a series of days, weeks, months, whatever. But how did you decide what to do to grow? I think listening at this point, we're in a validation phase.
0: So listening to the customers was big at this point. And so how did we decide what to do? We... You know, as mentioned, we were working on these theme weeks and we were working on the product and the theme weeks were focused a little bit more on activities, basically small
1: events. So cooking classes, yoga sessions, uh, what have you. How did you get I'm yeah. like nitty gritty here on the specifics, but so theme weeks came from somebody. So at a certain point, these had to, I don't know, you came up with it or you guys were texting each other late at night or like morning stand up, someone says theme weeks. Like, how did you either have the discipline or the creativity to throw those ideas up on a board? And then how did you pick the one ultimately to focus on? How did we, we did, we, to be honest, we could have had a lot more focus. So we had, how did we pick? I'd say
0: we had a process where we would look at this sort of wheel of marketing, channels and activities and we would do something in every single spoke of the wheel and one of them would stick and we you know it, it this particular one was the theme weeks but we had all like a hundred other ones that probably we could have vetted in advance and maybe screened out but that was our process so you would just Throwing a
1: bunch of stuff out there. Throwing some spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stuck. Trying them all at once. And then, ooh, theme week seems to be doing something. Let's just do more of what seems to be working. That's right. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? There's no, it's not like there's off, it's not always these big team strategic offsite meetings where you lock yourself in a room for two days and come up with the ideas. It's like in the early days, you're just trying anything and everything, and there's no real. Doesn't have to be rigor necessarily, or process around it. Could could it have been helpful? Maybe. Yeah,
0: I think especially as a first time entrepreneur, right? So you you kind of learn by doing, and then maybe next time around, I think we'd be we'd be able to use some intuition and be more decisive and know a little bit more in advance what kind of spaghetti sticks to the wall and which doesn't.
1: Got it. Okay, so back to where we were. So. You're doing theme, works, theme weeks, you're uh, getting things going, users are starting to come, you've got some traction, you started, went to raise some money, but they said need more traction. So keep going. Yeah. So we found that the theme weeks were effective because we could go get one
0: activity organizer, or what we now would call an event organizer, and they would bring you know tens or maybe eventually 100 uh, attendees. And that was a lot more demand side generation than bringing on one Dog walker, who maybe brings zero customers or one customer, and you need to generate all their demand. So we found that that worked really well. We then found that we were having a lot of traction, kind of the food space. So we had a lot of food events on Universe, food food event organizers, and then uh, we got a, a celebrity chef from Top Chef Canada. Um, he threw his birthday party on Universe. It was five bucks a ticket. 300 people and they were all foodies because it was it was literally his birthday party and so he had all these other chefs and f- food community people and now we had we're like this is great we have this base of food event organizers from there we went to the stops night market which was a very popular food festival in Honested's alleyway and got that event and then that that was kind of a, a turning point because in that one event, we eclipsed all of our sales from all of these other efforts mm-hmm. by bringing on this this
1: one little food festival mm-hmm. with maybe 2000 people can you elaborate on w- what was the pivot from sharing economy to events so you were yeah you had some traction on to that peer to peer side but then what was the what was the moment where you made the switch like the the full switch or even the beginning so you're talking about your mm-hmm. first food event but at the time you were talking about uh, you were trying to invite dog walkers. So yes. where, where did you get, when did the first event opportunity come up? It was a little bit of a gradual
0: thing so that, you know, it's it's hard to say what was the first. The first, you could define the first as the first cooking class, right? Maybe that was when it switched when we had, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 people learning to make gnocchi. Um, actually in our office, we offered our office as a venue and maybe that's the switch or maybe it was when we started to get into these larger events where they needed you know, QR codes that could be scanned on site and so forth. Maybe that was the switch product wise, but it was only until later that we focused exclusively on events and cut out the more
1: purist sharing economy things like items and skills. Right. When I, when I think peer to peer, and maybe this is wrong, but when I think peer to peer, I often think one to one, Mm -hmm. like you've got something, I want it. I'll give you dollars if you trust, we trust each other. Right. But then to go to a Cooking class. I see how it would happen. I've got skills. I'm a chef. I want people to come, pay me, and I will share you the skills. But now it's not one to one. It's one to many. Yeah. And to your point, the chef brought ten people with him. It was like, ooh, this is more interesting than just one person at a time. Yeah.
0: We viewed that. I guess you could describe it maybe as peer to peers, right? We would have, yeah, we had the peer to peer one to one dog walker to dog or dog owner, but then we also viewed the sharing economy or part of it as maybe instead of going to a restaurant maybe you want to go attend a dinner party in your condo building and maybe it's with strangers but maybe it's with strangers that you can trust because they are you know a couple degrees removed and you have you can see that they've done other things within the sharing economy that are proof points that they're a trustworthy person so we viewed that as part of the fabric of of the sharing economy which is maybe a beyond the typical definition which is more one to
1: one yeah got it so now you find yourself almost as a, like, when did you, when would you define yourself as a ticketing company then? When was that switch?
0: We still try to not define ourselves as a ticketing company. We still talk about it as a marketplace. So we still try to maintain some of that ethos. And, but the switch away more fully from the sharing economy wasn't until maybe a year or two after that. So at this point we're facilitating this marketplace for activities which are now becoming events, as well as these one-to-one interactions. And our philosophy and hope was that we would have these people run these activities and events, it would generate demand, they would come into the system, and we would cross-sell them into other categories. They would start you know, hiring that dog walker or... Lending out their ladder um, into their their network, so that was the the grand vision was we would use this as a way of generating demand that would unlock this massive sharing economy vision.
1: Got it. And that started to play out. Uh, we we started
0: to generate a lot of demand. It didn't all convert into the supply side or the or the sharing economy side, and we were resource constrained. You know, we we had raised at the end of the day over the course of time we ended up raising two and a half million. But that's not a ton in terms of trying to build out the eBay for yeah. sharing economy or the Amazon for sharing economy. That's, you know, we were sort of looking to build 64 Airbnbs. We had eight categories and eight subcategories below each category. So we had 64 of these subcategories. And in order to really do justice to that, I think we needed probably some more capitalization. And we didn't have that. So, you know, the lack of resources created focus and forced us to focus on what was really, really working really well. And that for us was this new approach to facilitating events and helping events, uh, event organizers market
1: their event. So was there ever... Was there ever a moment where you kind of drew a line in the sand and said this is a this is a pivot we're pivoting? Or was this just the natural There exchange? was a well,
0: it, w- it was definitely a bit of a gradual approach as as described, but there was a moment that was a bit of a, a moment, which was we listening to our customer feedback, had a feature request. People wanted to be able to embed their ticket sales. So in their own their, websites. In their own websites. Yeah. And so we had two ways of doing it. We had kind of the quick way. But we had a more advanced way where the person would stay on that external website after the purchase. And we thought, you know, let's, let's go on a limb and let's try to build the more advanced one because it'll be a differentiator. So we did that. And in doing so, we built it for one half of the marketplace. To make it quicker to get to market, we built it for the activities only and not the services. And so we, we built that, we launched it, people loved it. And then the next step was, okay, now we need to build this for services because that's, that was our approach with all product. We had to have it apply to all verticals. So that was sort of the natural next step. And at that point, we took a step back and said, you know what? This feels like we're building two companies here. This is slowing us down. And we, at that point, we had a lot of sushi lunches. Our, my co-founders and I, we always kind of met over sushi lunches or sushi dinners. And we took a step back and had to basically rally the co-founder team and then later, the investors and, and other stakeholders around. Okay, we are focusing on this, and we are shutting down the rest. And that was a that was a uh, one of the best decisions we ever made because it sped everything up. It made it much simpler to describe. It's not this sharing economy sort of conceptual thing anymore. It's a very tangible. We are an event marketplace. You can embed your t- your ticket sales. It is. Much more crystal clear, and from there we saw a really big inflection point.
1: So, what year was that? When did you make that change? That would have been I'm
0: trying to remember. I think it was it was twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen.
1: So, how many yeah. years in? That was three years in.
0: Yeah, that was. I think it was probably
1: two and a half years in. Yeah, doesn't sound like a long time. That's a long time. Two and a half years or three years on the same. Idea with like same original business model. That's a, that's a long time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. So then you, then you switch over to becoming a not, let's say, I don't want to, I'm not going to call you a ticketing company, but you were effectively selling, people were running events and selling tickets to people on their own websites. That's right. So did you face any backlash or have any... Fears yourself about then competing with some of the big boys, because if you, if you are, if you were not a ticketing company, but could be perceived as a competitor to the big players, you're in a whole different world. Um, having been in the live event business, it's not a business that That's right. generally people can just jump into. There's a whole shark pool that you've got to learn. Yeah, um, it's a very competitive space. So how did you found yourself suddenly swimming with sharks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell and me maybe, how that went. Definitely. yes. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of the,
0: that was some of the feedback, um, you know, from co-founders and from investors is like, you know, but should we really do this? This is such a competitive space. And, you know, it was, the answer was like, well, Yes, we're listening, we're listening to our customers. This is what they they love our product for this. We're listening to our employees, to our team, just like listening to all the stakeholders. And it was a a pretty natural thing. We'd already kind of moved into it almost by accident. We started out with these activities, which graduated into larger and larger activities, which became events. And then next thing you know, we're we're in the world of ticketing and and events kind of by
1: accident. Okay, so this is now you said 2014. What 20, 2013 or 14? Yeah. 2013 14. Yeah. So what next? You focused on you you found your call it niche within the sharing economy that was working. Did you pick a niche within events that you wanted to focus on? We, you
0: know, we felt we had strengthened the food sector, food events, so we kind of focused on that. We were definitely general mission. Like, we didn't have any reserve seating functionality. So, we were really focused on these small, you know, indie events ranging from that cooking class or a letterpress, you know, class up to a food festival. Um, that's kind of the, the content that we focused on initially. But then that shifted because we found that our product was applicable for different types of content, it was applicable for technology conferences and you know, that may sound different than a food festival, but the underlying sort of technology was was pretty similar. And then our main focus of differentiation at this time was the embeddability. We realized that no one else had this. This is something that's super unique. People really want this, and that that made it easy to sell.
1: That was the unique functionality at that time? That was, yeah. Because typically if someone goes to purchase a ticket, you would advertise it on your website, but when it comes time to actually purchasing the ticket... You click the link; it's going to put you over to Ticketmaster or, or Eventbrite or somebody else. Exactly, um, and you could keep the experience within their own. Interesting. So, did you find yourself at a certain point taking business from those other companies?
0: Yeah, definitely. We, uh, we, I mean, we weren't competing with Ticketmaster; um, totally different scale. But we found that our largest source of kind of lead gen or or customers that we could get were from coming from Eventbrite.
1: Interesting. So, people that. Just exclusively, the main reason they would come to you is just for that embeddability. We want to do the same thing, but we want to keep it in our own experience. And your sales team hammered that. We just hammered that. Yeah.
0: We found, you know, why did people like this embeddability and just really hammered that home and kept enhancing it and improving it.
1: Cool. So if we peel back some of the layers here, I want to get in, get in the hood get under the hood to business model unit economics things, because when you changed... When you repositioned what you were as a company and what you were moving into, did that require that you change your business model? Did the unit economics change? Did you have to hire more people, fire people, open offices? What what changes did that force on you? Didn't really create personnel changes, but uh, yeah, I mean, we
0: and the business or the revenue model was relatively similar, so it was still taking a commission of of the sales. But we then crystallized that and, and looked. We now knew more directly, okay, these are our competitors. There's these various event competitors out there. And let's align our pricing to reflect our differentiation and ability to compete and make it easy for the the customer to choose between these different offerings. So we adjusted our pricing, but the revenue model remained pretty similar.
1: On the pricing side, did you? how did you figure out what to price it at you were ex investment banker consultant was this a ridiculous insane excel model or how did you figure out what you should price it at
0: it was not and there it, we wanted to keep it really simple so we basically looked at the landscape and said okay we're going to price relative to this and and kind of go from there and we knew that we weren't we were you know we were smaller we had some differentiators but we had a lot less features right so we you know would price similar to our competitors now we're you know, we're able to kind of have a little bit more room and add more value and and you know capture some of that value. But then it was sort of like let's
1: price competitively compared to these these other offerings. It can often be as simple as that. We talk about pricing recently and it's look at what people are pricing at today. So who are your what you consider your competition? How are they pricing? What value do they bring? And where do you want to position yourself relative to them? What perception do you want to give? So are you a higher quality person or high-quality company or service relative to what's already out there, so maybe you put a premium on it, but then also making that jive with your overall business. So if we price it at this, can we make that work with our overall revenue model, cover our overhead, those sorts of things? Were you guys worried about that, or were you one of those um, venture-funded companies that investors said, like, just get, show usage, show the people are using this, like, worry about that and worry less about the unit economics and whether this is a profitable company?
0: So we were worried about the unit economics but less so you know we were worried about our runway and our unit economics and we knew that if we had unit economics that are favorable we'll just need to scale it to a certain point in order to become profitable so we were more focused at that phase on the unit economics like are we bringing are we able to generate you know leads convert those leads into event organizers have them sell tickets and take our our fee on those tickets and make more money on that than it cost us to bring in the event organizer in the first place so we kind of focused on that on that engine and once we knew we had an engine for that that was that was what we were into
1: good how did you think about building out the early stage sales team because this is something that a lot of early companies struggle with um and i know the the folks on your team that uh, were in charge of that having interacted with them uh, mm-hmm. before and I think I may have even met with them in San Francisco mm-hmm. was a really nice running machine at least from an external perspective so how did you how did you build that out
0: I mean there's a lot of dimensions we could talk about right like there's the the structure of the team how do you structure a sales team there is the sales process I think that our our focus at first was let's get that sales process going. So the way that we defined it is we, and then we applied this approach beyond sales to anything, where as a co-founder, we would take on something ourselves, we would get our hands dirty. We would, uh, in this case, be emailing potential prospective event organizers one by one, and then we'd find ways to automate this. And then we'd find ways to hand that off to people in the team. So that was kind of our approach with everything, but in this case we're talking about sales. So yeah, we just start cold emailing people and then following up with them manually, you know, from our you know Google Apps Gmail accounts, and just you know repeatedly doing that, and then learning that we can do this a little bit more systematically and more and more systematically and kind of take it from there. And then we started to grow the sales team and brought in some people who had, uh, some of whom, Sebastian, whom I met, he I met as a client. So I was pitching a client and he was running a St. Patrick's Day event. And I said, you know, this guy, he's an Ivy grad. and Keeping the family? Keeping the family. He's an Ivy grad. He is a promoter. He's, a, he's running events. And he's working for a telecom company in the tech sector. I, you know, I think he'd make a really great salesperson. So we brought him in, uh, managed to sell him, and and he came aboard. And so we brought on some people of that nature, and then we started to enable them with these these tools and automation um, to to drive that pipeline. Nice.
1: So then, fast forward to ultimately, when do you get the call, or when do you pursue Ticketmaster? Yeah. So fast forward to that. There's some
0: interesting junctures and steps in there. So along the way, we're we're raising VC. So we're pitching VCs. We've got some interest. And uh, in parallel, we decide at this time. Just to recap, we're universe with two eyes at this point.
1: Oh, right. right? Yeah. So you remember that? Yeah, oh,
0: yeah. Uh, Universewithtwoeyes.com. And initially, that was to represent the eyes were two people, two little heads and bodies. Meeting real life, one-to-one kind of, you know, in, real person interaction. But this, you know, it was kind of a if you're telling someone where do you work or what's the name of the product, you always had to say universe with two eyes. <laughs> and it didn't always look the most trustworthy. So we decided, okay, let's let's find a way to see if we can buy universe.com. And I tell you this because this is part of the, the juncture and raising capital and everything that that was a bit of a catalyst. So we found a really clever way to buy universe.com by doing a lease with a right to buy. So, we contacted anonymously the prior owner of universewithoneeye.com and expressed an interest to buy this, negotiated a price and negotiated a a structure where we could pay them a monthly payment, lease it, but we had a contract where we could pay them, you know, a bigger chunk and then own it outright. And in the meantime, the domain was uh, parked at an escrow agent, so an escrow agent would hold it. And if we defaulted on our contract, it would go back to the seller. And if we exercised our contract, it would go to us, the buyer. And so this allowed us, being a little bit capital constrained, to not throw a whole chunk of capital at this random do- domain name, but to have the usage of it for
1: a you know a nominal monthly fee. So you did actually actively start to use it. I mean, you had. Because you had it in the escrow account, you negotiated this deal, you exactly. were now, you
0: rebranded. We rebranded as Universe with OneEye.com, and that was another inflection point, because yeah. now, you know, it was easy word of mouth for our customers to describe, for us to describe. It was more trustworthy. It kind of made a splash in the industry. Industry is going, wow, you know, there must be something here. How are, how are these these guys buying this expensive top tier domain name. And so that kind of reinvigorated some of these VC conversations. In parallel to the VC conversations, we had a um, a ticketing company reach out to us who we started to, to speak with. They were interested in buying us. And so we had you know these conversations and they were interesting. But then we thought, oh, maybe we should, let's broaden this out a little bit. Let's see what would this look like if we were to you know, bring in some of the, the bigger players. And we Reactivated some of our partnership conversations that we'd previously had. So earlier in the journey of Universe, we had actively began partnership conversations with some of the larger event players and even Google and eBay and stuff to genuinely structure partnerships. You know, maybe they could refer event organizers to us. Maybe we could be a do-it-yourself uh, event marketplace that would complement their other businesses. And so we reactivated those conversations and dot 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 sold to Live Nation and there's you know that's an interesting story in of itself that that negotiation that process that was very exciting.
1: Yeah, that's so can you give me just rewinding for a second to the domain give me a feel for like what what does a top tier domain sell for even range wise just so that people have an idea. Range wise,
0: you know, we're talking six figures plus. Six figures yeah. plus for
1: okay. Yeah. To the extent that you're willing to share, those negotiations or conversations with Live Nation might be interesting. I always say that businesses don't generally get bought, they get sold. It's not all the time that someone may just tap you on the shoulder out of the blue that you've never had a conversation with before and say, I'm going to buy you for X, Y, Z, multiple of revenue. It's usually some conversation that had built over time. And guess what? What we said we were going to do, we did it. You know, we've got traction, we service a need that you don't currently service being self-serve ticketing. So is there anything that you can share about those conversations? Yeah, I can't share everything,
0: but there are are certainly some interesting insights that I can share. We did have inbound interest, and so that's what sparked it. And that inbound interest helped us in the negotiations to demonstrate that there's multiple parties who are interested in this, and why have we started these conversations. But then we did broaden it out, and we, we were actively involved in selling it, right? And one of the um, pivotal moments was we discovered that Live Nation was very interested in this thing called distributed commerce. So they wanted to be able to sell, let's say, a Drake ticket on Spotify um, or to be able to sell a Blue Jays ticket on ESPN.com. And that was an aha moment because our key differentiator is embeddable tickets, embed- embeddable ticketing. And so that was a, a synergy we were able to pitch. So it was sort of that was something that really resonated. And to make this repeatable for other entrepreneurs, you know, the process I would recommend is, you know, if you look at, you know, investor relations documents, you can look at the strategy documents of prospective acquirers, see what their top top level strategies are, and if you have something that can align to it, then that is something that you can work on. And so that made the the conversation just very interesting for uh, for Michael Rapino, and it was that paired up with a best in class, you know, do it yourself, self serve ticketing company, which complemented very well Ticketmaster, which does much much larger stuff. So you kind of had this dovetail of this longer tail ticketing company plus this technology synergy of embeddable ticketing, instant distributed commerce.
1: Could I call you on it because you just called yourself a ticketing company? So when you were when you were meeting with <laughs> At a, this point we're a ticketing company. Yeah. <laughs> when you were meeting with Live Nation or with uh, with Ticketmaster, were, were you actively calling yourself a ticketing company for those conversations? We were, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So today then, you're post acquisition. You are still act- very actively involved. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on today at Universe?
0: Yeah, today it's it's super exciting. You know, one of the reasons that I've remained is it's remained highly entrepreneurial. So a lot of autonomy and Mike Ropino is very good at having his acquisitions run that way. That's kind of a philosophy that he has. And so what's new is we've been expanding internationally quite dramatically. So we've been opening up offices in um, London and Australia and now Hong Kong, and we've internationalized the product into many many currencies and alternative payment methods, so non credit card payment methods and languages. And we're really excited to see events all around the world using Universe.
1: Nice. So I've been you and I knew each other from from the event business. We knew each other maybe before that, but we like started to interact more when we were yeah. both in the event business. There is a lot of travel for both of us. Yep. I think you do a really good job of embracing it. And maybe it's not the... We don't see each other all the time, so I'm living vicariously through your Instagram updates. (laughs) Yeah. But I think you do a good job of enjoying the journey because you could view it as I have to do all this travel for work or I have the opportunity to see the world through work that is that matters. So uh, just an observation you do a really good job of that. So you still travel a lot for work?
0: Yeah, you know, a good amount and I enjoy the travel. You know, we get to travel to great cities, great events and you know, with great people and so I think that that, that makes a difference. It's different than the consulting travel where you're you know, headed every week to some place that you may not be as excited about. So yeah, it's, I think it's some of those dimensions.
1: Nice. Has anything personally changed for you since the acquisition? Because that is the dream of so many, right? You start this thing, this thing is working, you get tapped on the shoulder out of the blue from this giant company and they buy your company and then you sail off into the sunset. So what is what has changed, if anything, from the acquisition for you personally?
0: I mean, the business is a lot different. And so that makes it a, a different personal sort of setup. We're now almost 70 people. And at the time of the acquisition, we were, you know, about 25. And so that's a very different, uh, business and it's, it's a different sort of management style and we're much more international now. And so that has changed sort of my day to day. It's, it's definitely more around leading these, these people and setting up structures and enabling this organization. So that, that's a bit different. Yeah. I mean, personally enjoying the travel, it's a, it's it's a different environment, you know. You know, not. not um, I guess a key difference is, I I'm not spending my time out raising money from VCs anymore. Um, that before selling, you know, we were always looking to extend our runway and accelerate that next phase of growth. And so a big part of my role was going out and building relationships with potential VCs and partners and raising that capital. Now we are, as part of Live Nation, the largest live entertainment company in the world, we have access to that larger balance sheet. And so it's less so around going out and pitching for that. It's demonstrating success more continuously and kind of being enabled by that. And so that frees up time to focus on on other things within kind of running the business. Can
1: you comment on your relative level of contentment or happiness or anything like that because i think that some it's easy to get caught up in the idea that more is going to lead to more but now being at a point where i mean you're you're not uh, sailing into the sunset for all of time but you're in a good position has it changed your baseline level of happiness or passion or drive or, you know, are there weeks where you just say, I don't want to do it this week? Has, has it changed anything like
0: that? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. And I think uh, starting a company and then selling a company, that was something that was on literally my bucket list. When I graduated, I created this bucket list and I've been ticking some things off on it. And so it was certainly, it was this great accomplishment, but in terms of levels of happiness, just to answer your question, I think that I was happy Before starting Universe, I was then very happy. After starting it, during kind of the building out of Universe, including when we were taking no salary, and I think I'm like a similar level of happy now. So I I think that the success and the, you know, the, you know, wealth creation isn't isn't something that necessarily generates the happiness. I think it's something that comes kind of from within. With that being said, and this is something more after starting Universe. So you know, working in consulting, I would you know. Make decent money, and then maybe go out for a meal. And obviously, the food tasted good. But I always tell people that after starting Universe, you know, each dollar that I made, and when I if I made food or went out for dinner, food just tasted better because I, you know, I created it. It felt more fulfilling. So there was kind of a difference there. But I'm I was you know I'm happy after selling the company. I'm I'm happy. I was happy before as well.
1: Yeah, you honestly seem like the same. You haven't. Changed really at all? You have not changed hope, at all. I hope well, I, I hope same, not too much. Yeah, you're the same guy from before, during, after. Um, yeah, so that's great. I I think it's a, a testament to your character. You you have a good sense of what's important to you, and I think your at least my perception of your Instagram life is like that. Actually, is your life? You know, you're generally a, you are a happy person. You're, you you yeah. seem fulfilled, and uh, you're doing it right. You're doing it. The Thank right you. Way. Yeah. Some quick ones to, as we wrap up here. Is there anything if you could think back to 20-year-old Craig, is there any advice that you'd give to yourself back in the day? I would
0: say do do what you love. Do more of what you love. Double down on that a little bit more, I think. If there's something that you don't like doing, then stop doing it and yeah. uh maybe travel more. I think I I certainly traveling, you know, a good chunk now. I traveled back then as well, but I think I would say
1: travel even more. That's a piece of advice that I would give. Is there something that you loved back then that you were like, oh, I wish I would have done. There's that thing that I wish I would have done more. Like, Is there something specific? I think like traveling them? a little bit. That's one
0: piece. I had some opportunities to
1: go to some countries and I was like, oh, I don't know,
0: I got to work on this or I got this going on and kind of deferred it. And it's just like, no, look, looking back, it's like, should just go for it. So, yeah. And generally I did go for it, but I would say go for it even more yeah. And, you know, I, I loved rock climbing. I loved uh, staying active and do even more of that would be advice to my 20 year old self. Should people start businesses right out of school? If they want to do it, then they should. I think that it's different per person. And I think, uh, yeah, I'd say, you, you know, you've got to go for it. If you know it's, it's the right time to start something, then, then go for it. Maybe create that checklist of, of hurdles for yourself. And if you're, passing through those hurdles. Go for it. Yeah. Maybe that's for you. Maybe that's right out of school or maybe you want some more experience or you want to build up some more network or, you know, a little bit of savings that you can invest into that company before so that you can get through those hurdles. That's my approach at least.
1: Is there a place that you do your best thinking?
0: I did a lot of my best thinking rock climbing. So, you know, I think there's things that people do where it just sort of totally clears your mind. If you're rock climbing or maybe you're playing a sport or maybe something else, there's this sort of state of flow where you're not thinking about anything else and it clears your mind. And then when you emerge from that activity, you then have a very clear head and you're sort of in a very creative state. And so I think that that really
1: uh, creates some of the best thinking. That dovetails into my next one, which is what do you do to keep yourself physically and mentally right? Rock climbing still? I wish I were rock climbing more. I should get back into it at a more regular
0: pace. But yeah, I think you know, staying active, working out these days, a lot of you know, cooking, um, cook for yourself, cook for myself a lot. Eating out is not a. Oh, it's both. Yeah. With that much travel, you have to eat out. Yeah. But I think that yeah, maybe I get a little bit of a state of flow from just cooking, and you know, it's a creative outlet.
1: Yeah. Do you journal at all? I don't. No. Do you journal? Not in the traditional sense. So I do, I use a five minute journal. If you've heard of that before? No. So it's in the morning, it's a ritual you're supposed to get into. I'm guilty of not doing it every day. I probably do it 50% of the time. So in the morning, it takes two and a half minutes. You write down three things that you're grateful for, what you're looking forward to that day. And it can be as small as I am able to stand up out of my own bed. I have a bed that I get to go to bed too. And my kids are healthy an example. And three things that I'm looking forward to today would be getting to catch up with you. I have the opportunity to teach a class tonight and we just bought a new house. So I get to to thank you. I get to sleep in my new house tonight Yes, on an airbed, but I still get to sleep there. And at the end of the day, you just reflect on what are, what were the three best parts of your day? And is there one thing that would have made the day better? And it's just training your mind to look for being appreciating some of the smaller things and then looking forward to things throughout the day so it's just the practice of gratefulness and thankfulness um i also journal on call it screw ups things that i've done well not done well learnings throughout the years so these are smatterings all over the place so i'm not like the guy that sits down every single day religiously Mm -hmm. journals but i jot things down that's cool i like that yeah I'll buy you a gratefulness journal. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Last one, is there anything you wish you would have learned earlier or a skill that you think if you would have had it buttoned up or unlock heading into universe that it would have helped you in starting growing universe? I think if I could,
0: you know, whisper into my ear when I was starting the company, I would say pull a trigger on that focus a little more quickly. I think I knew that we would need to focus the business at some point. It was just a matter of where we cast this really wide net, and you know. But uh, I think, yeah, you know, it's skill around foc- focus, focus, both in terms of the types of customers we're going after, but the different, you know, marketing channels and all these things. I think focus is really key. It's
1: hard, yeah. right? Because people don't want to say no. Yeah. To things, an example that I give often is when you think about Starbucks. We're drinking our delicious Christmas cup Starbucks coffees here, so I'm looking at the logo. Mm-hmm. But Starbucks is at least if they if if they wrote down who their target market is, it's for us, spec- it's for a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that all the other people won't buy it, right? It's, exactly. It's not. It's not built. The Starbucks isn't building their brand with my mom in mind, but you better believe that every year that Christmas drinks come out, she's the first one in line spending eight bucks on a latte. Mm-hmm. So I think people have a fear of if you focus, you have to say no to some people, but that's actually a good thing. Yes. And the side effect is that even though you're saying it's not for those, it's not for everybody, there are people in those not for everybody circles that will still buy your product. Exactly but it's hard. Yeah,
0: that's definitely a lesson. And I I tell people, it's interesting. You know, We've grown universe a lot. We're still growing very rapidly. And ironically, we continue to focus as we get bigger and bigger, at least at this stage. It's like, let's focus further and further on specific categories, specific types of events. And yeah, it doesn't mean that these other types of events won't work with us. It just means that we're thinking about some focal areas a little bit more closely.
1: Good. I am going to wrap up, but I want to give one more chance to talk about, um, I'm, I'm rewinding here, so mm-hmm. unit economics. Yeah. And the importance or the unimportance of having an idea of how you were going to make money, how you were going to price, how you were going to charge, how you tracked whether you were hitting those metrics on a weekly, monthly basis. How did you approach that in the business planning process or in the pivot process? Was there a master Excel sheet that you kept revisiting? Did your investors hold you accountable to those things and just give people a feel for at the stage that you guys were at? What rigor did you have around unit economics? Yeah, we
0: we were always thinking about it. And there were different levels of rigor and approaches at different stages. So prior to launch, we were thinking about it. And it was part of the business plan. You know, We were pre-revenue, so there was a dynamic of raising pre-revenue where they're, if you don't have revenue, they're focusing on the other things, team, product or prototype, and then business plan. But a key part of that business plan is, all right, how are you going to monetize? How is this going to scale? How is this going to pan out? And so there was definitely some really good thinking in there sort of conceptually at that stage. And then if you fast forward, there was some a lot of rigor that uh, we put together around measuring on a cohort basis. You know, so the, the a cohort defined as users who signed up in month X, what revenue did they generate for us in the month that they signed up, and then the next month, and then the next month, and et cetera. And as you project that, what is the lifetime value of that cohort? And then we tracked that month over month and we'd say, okay, the, the cohort that signed up after that one, maybe the cohort was a little bit bigger. Maybe the cohort itself was a little bit smaller in terms of quantity of, of customers, but what was the value that we were creating month after month from them, and what's the new lifetime value for that one. And what we were able to track is kind of month over month, as we progressed through time, we were able to make the product better for them, more valuable for them, and sell into larger and larger customers that created more and more valuable cohorts. So that was a a key sort of unit economic analysis that we looked at. And then the counterpart to that is the cost. So that's the the top line, and then the other side of the you know economic is what does it cost to generate those customers,
1: and who ran that for Who ran that process for you? The tracking process.
0: It was yours truly. It was looking
1: mm-hmm. at the uh, yeah a lot of Excel crunching,
0: crunching you know just raw export data at this time from our databases. Now we've systemized it into tools that do it on an automated basis and allows us to step back. and The data is too big to do it in Excel now, but yeah, on that side, and then uh, the other side is tracking the the cost of acquisition.
1: And did you? Where did you learn to do that? Uh, Ivy. <laughs> the the actual like unit economics tracking. Well,
0: or... not necessarily. No, I mean the the Excel skills and the analytics. I think you know school. So even engineering school as well as as business school, and then you know consulting and investment banking after. But then the specific cohort analysis it was less so around how did i learn to do that more so around how did i know that was the right question to answer or the right output mm. and one of the biggest learnings for me was going out and pitching hundreds of vcs and hundreds hundreds wow. i've pitched hundreds of vcs and you know obviously you only take investment from one or two you get a lot of declines and you need a lot of tenacity but some of those vc conversations even if we got declined were extremely valuable they were just illuminating. They would ask really hard questions and really pointed questions. And I found some VCs that were just really smart and really on point. And it was those VCs that I'm thinking of that I started to prepare answers for them and do analyses for them, but then would help us ourselves as well as of course other VC pitches, but more importantly, help the business itself.
1: Yeah. That's a good learning actually, because that's how we that's how we started to implement some of that rigor as well at Intellitix. It was mm-hmm. have conversations with VCs, maybe maybe a little too early, right? But that's okay. That's okay. See what see what their feedback is. See what they tear down. Yep. Take some of it, make it better, so that by the time you're actually ready to do the raise, you've been tracking your unit economics and cohort analysis and the metrics that they're exactly. looking for. for exactly. Building
0: a relationship day. along the way.
1: Yeah. So good. Good. Where can people find you now, either through universe or online or any words to the listeners of the podcast?
0: So you can find me on universe.com. Um, of course, um, with, one eye. with one eye now, nice. you can still type in two eyes at redirects. <laughs> and then on Twitter, I'm at Craig Follett and same on Instagram. So awesome. Connect with me.
1: Great to have you. I think this is a great topic for the class. I think uh, people are going to find a lot of value in this. And we will definitely get a case on the books for Universe because I think there's a lot of cool teachable points for, for your story that we should bottle up for all of time. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks cool. for having me. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship.